Welcome to today's episode. I'm very excited about our content today. And the topic that we're going to get into specifically is with a very special guest on uh, the issue of healing. How do we heal from damaging experiences? And specifically, how do we heal from experiences where we get either abused or we, we, we get really hurt? When it's a religious situation or we're in a religious or faith community, how do we how do we walk with God when it hurts? And I'm really excited about our guest today. Uh, she's kind of an, an infamous person. She's, she's one of these people that's, that's very well known for different reasons that we'll get into. Uh, but we're going to be having Marilyn Crete join us today. And she's going to be talking about her journey to healing uh, as it relates to healing traumatic wounds, uh, from her kidhood and just later on through her life and so forth. Uh, through her upcoming book, The Box Must Be Empty. And I got a chance to read it before I did this interview. I'm really excited about it. It is an incredible story and testament to healing. And many of you may be wondering, as we get ready to talk about this, are we going to be getting into the Henry Crete letter of 2003? And the answer is yes. Uh, that will not be in this interview. Uh, I've got a new series called Off the Record where I get into uh, some more of those uh, intimate conversations, things that maybe are not the most beneficial for public broadcasts. Anyway, uh, the new series that I've got uh, will feature Marilyn uh, as it relates to the 2003 Henry Crete letter and so forth, her thoughts on it. And one of the things I'm really excited about is we're going to be able to hear from a female perspective. I'm really excited about her perspective as it relates to the letter. Um, but if if you're interested in that, please go to my Patreon page. Everything's down in the description. I'll make sure I put everything, whether it be podcasts or YouTube. You'll have everything. I'll make sure it's all down there. Anyway, uh, off the record is something that if you're interested, please go do that. Um, but more than anything, here's the deal. Even if we get information about some very sort of signature damaging moments in life, we still have to heal. Right, Information doesn't necessarily lead to transformation. And what we really need is we need a path. We need steps. You know, there, there's, there's a process to recovery. And without further ado, I'm super excited to introduce and welcome Marilyn Crete. Marilyn, welcome to the channel. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Very happy to be here. Yeah, and they don't know that our audience doesn't know we have been trying to get this interview going for some time and life has just continued to happen. But finally, finally, we were able to make this happen. today. I'm really excited, Marilyn. Thank you for joining me. My pleasure. All right. So the first question is this. Why did you decide to write your new book? Okay. Well, thank you. My The book's full title is actually The Box Must Be Empty, a memoir of complicated grief spiritual uh, despair and ultimate healing and um, it's a book that I carried in my heart for a long time and knew that one day I was going to write it when I was ready when I had the time and space in my life to do so um, especially when I when I felt like I was I've out, come, had come out the other end of it and had some positive healing experience to share um, it's also it's also part two I, I wrote a book a couple years ago called Paradise Road Another memoir, and this kind of gives you part one of my story. Um, it covers my early childhood and my teen years, and basically, I was I had a really difficult 
relationship with my parents growing up. I ran away from home at 14. I was in a girl's home for a couple of years and I was put um, out on my own at 16 and um, making my way in the world. And um, yeah, and then ultimately the, the, the heart of the story is a relationship. Uh, I fell in love with a man named Jack uh, when I was um, getting close to age 20. And um, he was just like everything that I had never had in my life. He was, he was an amazing person and he brought so much love and completion and joy and purpose and whatever, whatever you, <laughs> whatever I was missing, brought, brought it all into my life. And um, we had these dreams for a great future together. We were engaged to be married. We set off on a bicycle trip to South America together. But before we finished that trip, um, he died of cancer. So mm. um, I had no plan B. I was utterly devastated, but the grief was so great that I just basically ran away from it. So I jumped on my bicycle and started riding by myself and did all this bike trips and um, lived in my tent and met all these people and had these adventures and basically was just seeking, uh, seeking some kind of answers, seeking a way to move forward in my life after losing this person that had become my life. And so um, I think at the time I thought I was dealing with my grief, but I really wasn't. Um, mm. And so the second book, The Box Must Be Empty, jumps forward 20 years. And what happened was the grief that I didn't deal with in my early 20s had gone underground and it just burst into my life one day like like a, like a tsunami or like an underground volcano or whatever. and completely um, flooded my life and it felt like the, the death had just happened. It felt like the grief was just completely raw and um, of course it was very inconvenient because by this point I'm married and married to Henry, I'm in the ministry, we've got two kids, our life is extremely full and busy, got a lot of responsibilities, but this grief was just, it wouldn't go away and so the book uh, the Box Must Be Empty is about dealing with delayed grief and complicated grief. And then about all the traumas that kind of came on the heels of that because I wasn't really, I tried a lot of things to heal and a lot of things didn't really work and life kept happening and trauma kept happening and then next thing we knew, you know, the letter came out and that was a huge trauma. And so all of these things were kind of a flood of issues that I had to deal with spiritually and emotionally and and mentally. So that's really what the book is about. And um, I remember when I was going through it, the delayed grief part of it, I was desperate to find an example of anybody else in the world that had gone through something like that. And I, I couldn't find it. I was going to the library and searching books and I did come across delayed grief, but it generally referred to grief that came up maybe a few months later or a, month, a year later. And here I was 20 years later, um, grappling with this grief that honestly, nearly capsized my life. So um, at that point, I remember thinking, I'm going to write a book about this someday. So if anybody else is going through this, they can find me and they'll know that they're not alone in this mm. weird thing. Because um, to be honest, I still haven't found people that have dealt with it that much later. But I'm sure it must exist somewhere in the world. So, mm. yeah. So. Yeah, I, I love the, the, the theme of I thought I was good, mm -hmm. right? Because, you know, now we're kind of getting into grief plus trauma. And we'll talk about the different types of grief here in a moment. But this is so interesting because I think a lot of people, Marilyn, can identify with you. I think a lot of people 
have things that they thought time would sort of be a cleanser mm -hmm. in their lives, right? If it's later, if it's 20 years, 30 years later, then it, it's gone. It's under the rug. And what I'm hearing you say is that the things that happened to you in the formative years of your life remained unpre remained unmetabolized and they were there ready for you whenever right. you got around to it, but they didn't go anywhere. That's right. Yeah, they just kind of, I picture it like kind of a reservoir inside of us and it just, if we don't deal with our grief, it's like every, every new grief and loss just kind of floods into it and we get this huge, huge reservoir of, of pain and grief and um, yeah, stuff that we have to someday deal with before it deals with us, <laughs> finishes us. So, yeah. Absolutely. And on a trauma note, you know, someone who studies and treats trauma, one of the things that I, I have to say is someone who treats it, the reason why I think what you're saying makes so much sense is because the, the two biggest kind of pieces when it comes to trauma that affect resilience uh, is what happens to a person before they go through a traumatic experience. So what you take with you into it. And then how you're treated or how people respond to you after you go through a damaging experience, that tends to be those two parts, the before and the after, tend to be the thing that makes people's journey uh, either more challenging or uh, their process of recovery, uh, you know, it's a little bit easier, if you will. And so the before, I'm really hearing, and this is one of the things in the book that I really liked is, you know, you really went into great detail uh, as it relate to the things that you took with you into your Christian journey, into your ministry experience. It wasn't just what happened then, it was what happened before. Mm -hmm. Very much. Yeah, very much so. Yeah, and I think a lot of it, you know, I was I, I was trying to deal a lot with a lot of it by myself on my own. And um, mm. that doesn't usually work very well either. So, And I was really ignorant. I just really didn't know a lot about grief. I, I, uh, I, was, I was totally, totally a fight. And uh, yeah, even at the time that the death happened, I didn't know how to handle it, and and even you know even when it came up later, I was still pretty ignorant about um, what grief does, what it is, how it works. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. So, so one one of the most impressive parts of your journey is really what you share about grief. So as you're reading through the book, when you when you get Marilyn's book, when it comes out, you'll read through it. And she really gets into kind of like how she, you tried everything. Uh, you tried this, you tried that. And there's a, I don't want to ruin it, but there's this point in the book where the story shifts, where there is, you found something out. And I'm not going to, I'm not, I'm, I'm going to be, I'm, I'm going to let you explain it. But grief, understanding the mechanics of grief, the, the grief process has layers to it. It has steps to it. And it feels like once you sort of kind of figured that out, your journey really started to change. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, because I, I know like when when the initial, you know, the, the big grief was definitely Jack, but there were a lot of other griefs before and after that that were part of my journey. But, um, you know, I, I remember at, at that at that time, I remember thinking, you know, if, I, if I've cried hard a few times, I've grieved, not, not understanding that mm. grief you know, doesn't go away after a few good cries. But I think a lot of people do that. They let themselves cry hard a few times, right around the time of the loss. And then they bottle it up and think, well, I've, I've grieved, I cried, it's, it's done. Um, and it definitely doesn't work that way. And another thing that was, I think, a disadvantage in my case was that um, Jack hadn't wanted us to do any kind of funeral, memorial, and 
Um, there was no family around, whatever. So we didn't, there was nothing to really mark his death. The whole thing was very surreal to me. And then I got on my bicycle and rode away from everybody that I knew. And so I wasn't around people to grieve with them and to grieve with me. I just kind of, uh, again, tried to, tried, to do th tried to do it very much on my own. And a big part of that, I think, was, and this is more my Paradise Road story, but was really wanting to kind of prove to myself that I could be tough and that I could, I could endure mm. this. And that if I could endure you know, taking these bike, this bicycle trip by, alone, that I could face the rest of my life. And it was kind of a life test. But it didn't really help me um, deal with the grief because I was really more running away from it, I think. And yeah. Okay. Yeah, so we have a couple of things. So there's the this idea of delayed or disenfranchised grief. I actually had a conversation with someone earlier today and they brought up the term disenfranchised grief and I go, oh, I just read a book with Marilyn Cree and she talked about disenfranchised grief and, and delayed grief and where we have these parts of us that are disowned and, and, and there's just so many different layers to grief. Um, could you just share a little bit about what you uh, learned okay. about grief? Yeah, well, I think I think again, delayed grief. I think is essentially just grief that I, to my, goes underground. It's not fully experienced or processed, maybe till months or years later. And while it's while it's underground, it's not lessening. It's staying there. In fact, it's probably gaining more more strength, uh, more power. Mm -hmm. It stays unprocessed. And I think there's reasons for that. Um, I think you know, if we feel like the loss is just too much for us to handle in any way, we can push it down and think, you know. Maybe not consciously think I'll deal with it later, but we just don't let ourselves feel it. Um, I think a lot of times, if our there's a lot of other trauma going on in our life at the time, um, mm -hmm. that'll keep us from dealing with grief because uh, we're we're busy trying to just keep our head above water and and survive whatever's going on um, with other things. Um, and I think another big thing is trying to be strong. Um, Mm. or even in my case I think I was just trying to be strong for myself to prove to myself that I wasn't going to completely dissolve or because I really felt I remember at that time thinking if I really let myself feel this I think I'll just I think it'll destroy me so I'm going to be stronger than that um, but I think for a lot of other time other people it can be you know you, you, you're in a caregiver position or you're, you've got children or you've got a spouse or whatever older parents or whatever people, other people that you're taking care of and there's no time for you to really process and deal with your own grief. So what, for whatever reason, the grief just gets packed away. And um, again, time doesn't heal wounds like that. It, it uh, I mean, maybe in some cases it does, but it certainly didn't in my case. Um, mm. So yeah, so it, that's what that's what delayed grieving is. And like I said, I, I have yet to find other people that have had such a delayed, delayed grief. Um, to, to wait 20 years until it resurfaced. But, but then I hear about other people that are, you know, things from their childhood start coming up way later in life. And um, yeah, when I mention these people in that level, I think that that's quite common. Um, people that have lost a parent, for example, um, when they were a child and never really grieved it. And very often that grief comes up much later in life, maybe when they're, you know, when they're the age that that parent was or some other trigger. Um, yeah, I guess the other thing I want to say about delayed grief is generally what happens is some trigger comes along and it's, it, it kind of opens up the floodgates. Um, in my case, it was watching the movie Titanic. 
Um, <laughs> so, yeah, it was yeah. just t- completely devastated me. Um, it could be anything, but I, very often it's a, 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 another grief that comes up or someone else's grief can trigger your own buried grief. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah. Um, so that's delayed grief. Disenfranchised grief is really interesting. And um, I'm just going to read what I wrote about it in my book because I, yeah. I think I put it better than I can say it now. But So the term disenfranchised grief was coined by psychiatrist Kenneth Doka in the 1980s to describe a loss that cannot be socially sanctioned, openly acknowledged, or publicly mourned. The definition encompasses any number of losses that society may minimize or even overlook. The death of the very old or the very young, estranged or perhaps criminally tainted losses, the loss of secret lovers or non-familial attachments, um, or losses that are as permanent but maybe not as obvious as those that, that don't involve a physical death. I think this kind of ties in with uh, maybe a lot of trauma that people have gone through with with church stuff. Is that you know it, 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 feel, it can be like as it can feel as deep and permanent as a death, but it's not seen that way by other people. The fault may lie with the nature of the deceased, the death itself, or the perceived distance or fractures in the relationship with the departed one. Or it may lie with the griever. He or she may not be old enough, perceptive enough, or socially sanctioned enough to qualify as a legitimate griever and thus receive the support of others. Whatever the factors or complications, the disenfranchised griever is left wanting, and the unacknowledged or unacceptable grief becomes insidious as trapped emotions devour from within. The disenfranchised griever may not even know she's grieving, or she may deny, even to herself, the extent of the sorrow she carries. So one of these factors is usually present. Either the loss isn't acknowledged, for example, it's not a physical death, um, the relationship between the person and the deceased isn't recognized or isn't recognized for all that it meant to the person grieving. Um, or the griever isn't recognized. Again, maybe they're too young or too old or maybe they're even perceived as overreacting to loss so they, 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 they learn to disenfranchise their own grief. Um, in my case, I feel like I disenfranchised my own grief by running away from it. Um, leaving the place where the death and the relationship had happened and kind of throwing my life into totally new waters um, kept me from sharing my grief with others and, and really facing it. So, One of the things that I, I, as I'm listening to you talk about disenfranchised grief and delayed grief and so forth like that, it very much parallels trauma. You know, again, trauma is not just what happens, it's what happens next. And it's about what happens before. And so, you know, in the trauma world, in the grief world, we, we do run into this issue of what we call complicated grief or complicated trauma. And that's where you have trauma or grief that's been stacked up sort of through time. And people do not have the, you know, the mechanism or the technology sort of internally to process, to metabolize the things that they had been through. I also think it what you had talked about with disenfranchised grief is so important because when we do not live in a society that acknowledges certain losses, then it makes it harder for those losses to be acknowledged by an individual. And if they are acknowledged, it creates a special loneliness. And I, one of the things that you were sharing in your book, but also now, is just your loss that you experienced uh, because of the timestamp on it, it creates almost kind of a solitude. 
yeah. And so, yeah. And it, could you share a little bit about that? Yeah. We well, I mean, I, specific? I felt, uh, I think this theme probably comes up over and over again in the book, but I felt like a total freak. Like, I just felt like this is just, I'm, something's really wrong with me. And something's, something was really wrong with what I, how I dealt with it. I thought, you know, I, I did a terrible job dealing with it at the time. And now I'm doing a terrible job dealing with it now. And I'm a freak. And I couldn't, I, you know, at one point I, had, I, came, I saw a therapist quite intensely for a while. And he suggested that I go to a grief recovery group. So I did. And I, I share about this in the book. But I was almost comical because, you know, like we, we shared about the grief that we were processing in the circle. And everybody was like, I'm so-and-so. And, you know, my person died six months ago, my person died eight months ago, my person died four months ago, whatever. And I'm like, well, I'm here because, you know, my fiance died 20 years ago. And, and even in that group, I could just feel this, whoa, you know, um, mm. no one wanted to, to touch me. So I actually ended up, you know, leaving the group that day and, and never going back. But yeah, I think that's kind of the nature of being disenfranchised is it makes you feel like, um, you, you know, something's wrong um, with you or the the grief that you're grieving and um yeah it can, it can make it really difficult to you know i i, I think a lot of, another thing that comes a lot out a lot in my book is how much um self-hatred how, how much i berated myself and blamed myself mm. um for not dealing with this grief properly and then it, you know of course it created so much pain in my marriage and you know it it, it had an impact on a lot of other people at that time, 20 years later. And I was like, I was just feeling so guilty and bad for, um, you know, having this, <laughs> this problem, but it wouldn't go away. I, I mean, I could, you know, it wasn't as simple as just saying, well, it's a problem. So I'm just going to, you know, send it, in the, to send, it to, send it to the next room or something. It was, mm -hmm. it was staying until I, until I saw it, saw it through. So. Yeah. I want to, I want to, introduce a term that is very much related to where you're coming from and is this, this concept of mid-morning so mid-morning is when we are not able to complete the grief cycle or the tasks of grief and there's different ones right there's six stages of grief and then you know other models are based off of four and you know and so forth like that either way it goes when people are not able to successfully process their grief they get stuck in mid-morning and mid-morning is where we get stuck with a lot of the feelings of, of the loss, but we take on the disillusionment and it affects us and it's pervasive and it's sort of this enduring stuckness. It's kind of like, you know, you almost become comfortably miserable. The reason why I think this is important is because mid-morning is a trap for people depending on their expectations around how loss is supposed to work. So for example, uh, without getting into it too much into this interview, the Henry Crete letter of 2003, I can't tell you how many different reactions I see to that specific, that signature event that happened. One of the most consistent responses to it is kind of this, all right, let's just move forward. Now, what we're finding, especially if you're watching this video, is a loss like that or other losses that are parallel to it, this idea of walking it off or this idea of practicing avoidance or denial is one of those things that we can almost develop a religious language around, right? You know, Paul says in Philippians, um, I press on towards the goal, forgetting what lies behind and straining towards what lies ahead. We can start to import scriptures into a perspective around mid-morning that actually aren't helpful. 
um, or this idea of do everything without complaining and arguing. Again, these are the types of things that we see Job's friends kind of try to berate him with. And again, this disenfranchised loss is a serious issue because when you have people around you who aren't recognizing the gravity of your pain, people can enter a suicidal ideation, a stage of suicidal ideation, and you don't even know it. Now, all of a sudden you wake up, you read a tabloid, or it's a friend, and you realize they've taken their life and they've carried this loss in their lives for some time. And we have a culture that has minimized it. Again, people are desperate to just move forward, Marilyn. And the reason why I'm having you on is because that's unacceptable. That's not going to work for the majority of people. And psychologically and spiritually, it's not really that helpful. <laughs> so that's part of why I'm having you on is because people can get stuck in some of those stages of grief and they don't really know what the path looks like. And that's where I'm really excited for you. So for you, you kind of started to study out grief for yourself. What made you realize that you needed to study out grief specifically? Well, I'm kind of a researcher by nature, I think. I, I like to understand what's going on. Um, but honestly, part of it was I, I didn't feel like the therapist. I love my therapist. He's a wonderful, dear friend and person. But I didn't feel like he was giving me the direction that I needed. And I, I kept, I wanted some definitions from him. I wanted some diagnosis or something from him. And I wasn't getting it. And so I like, I've got to figure out what is it that I'm actually grappling with here? Why is this so huge? And why can't I just... You know, why can't I just pray it away or, or journal it away or whatever? Um, why is this so, you know, uh, overwhelming in my life? So, yeah, so I, I just kind of went to the library. This is before the internet for me. I, I just went to the library and started pulling down all the books I could find about grief and depression and loss and whatever and, and just uh, tried to educate myself. And, it, you know, helped to some degree. It wasn't the ultimate thing that helped me, but it definitely helped me understand why it was difficult and maybe take some of the blame off of myself for um, being in the condition I was in. So. Yeah, before we move on to the next question, I, I kind of want to go back to a couple things that you had said. So one of the things that you had talked about is you had a lot of self-loathing. Mm -hmm. I don't, I think that's really, a, I think that's a very valuable statement and an important statement that you made because when we go through grief or we go through trauma, we develop these damaging self-concepts mm -hmm. and we start to see the world through our damage the way we get damaged it makes us feel a certain way about ourselves and it makes us feel a certain way about others mm -hmm. and so you know that self-loathing and even just kind of like some people even get into self-harm and even worse and so forth like that what did you notice in terms of um the self-loathing was that something that was just in the younger or years or was that something that you noticed later on in life as well I think it was actually greatest uh, as as a, as a disciple at, at the time when the grief resurfaced, and I was I was I'm in my, I'm in my early forties, um, in the ministry, leading it, you know, helping my husband lead a big church, and got two kids, and um, yeah, but feeling like such a loser, feeling like I had this big failure mm -hmm. in my life, and that I was emotionally so unstable. I mean, I literally couldn't stop crying, and um, and I would share it with people, you know, I tried to share it with other. Christians and you know the response I got was very often people kind of backing away and um, just being kind of baffled by it and so yeah so I think the, the more I got that kind of response and the more I failed to find quick answers that I wanted to find the more I blamed myself and began to 
Yeah. Mm. yeah. So I think it was really tied in with um, feeling like I had, you know, even, even things like, you know, Jack died when I was 22. And in the process of searching and riding, going on my bicycle trips and stuff, I became a Christian. And then um, started, started um, you know, praying to find a, a church, a mission to attach myself to. And that's when I met Henry. And so two years later, I'm married to Henry, thinking that um, my grief is behind me. And, you know, to carry that into a marriage 20 years later, uh, there was so much, so much guilt and self-blame tied up with that. I felt terrible for Henry. I felt terrible for what I was doing to him. Um, and he, you know, he tried to be gracious to a point, but it was hard, really hard on him. And um, yeah, so all of that just contributed to the sense that, you know, I really made a mess of my life. I didn't handle things right. And now it's all crashing in. So. And I, what I love about where you're coming from, Marilyn, is I think some people kind of have this romantic perspective about becoming a Christian. So in other words, I got a new life. And what that meant was I got out of the waters of baptism and I found someone to date or I started leading a ministry or I got that job or the Red Sea parted for me and life was amazing. And it just kind of feels like, okay, maybe a couple people, but a lot of people find some of their greatest challenges after they say Jesus is Lord. In other words, that's when the real painful stuff, it's like this. So when we get forgiven, God pulls out the log. Okay. But he spends the rest of our lives pulling out all those little splinters. Good way to put it. There's a lot of splinters. There's a lot of splinters in our lives. Some are about us. Some are about others. And I think this sort of romantic um, and I'm not saying overly romanticized, but this idea of when we come out of the water or whatever, that our lives are just going, it's going to be clean. It's not going to be messy. The sin is over with and I can just move forward. No, 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 no. In fact, that stuff that you brought into your Christianity is going to be a part of your discipleship and a part of your healing journey as well. And I, I'm wondering, now, knowing what you know now, how do you look at sort of all of it, right? And in, in, in terms of your, you know, and, and what expectations do you now have for yourself as a Christian mm -hmm. as you realize how broken you were? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a really good point. Yeah, I think it's absolutely true. I mean, I think how we were all kind of taught and how we think, you know, is that, you know, baptism washes everything away and whatever things, I struggles I had there, there, it's water under the bridge and I don't need to, I shouldn't even be thinking about it anymore. In fact, I share this in the book too. There was an incident where, I guess I'd been married just um, over a year, year and a half or so. Henry and I had moved to Boston after about a year of marriage. And some of these feelings started coming up about Jack. And I didn't say anything to Henry about it, but I went, I, I made an appointment to go talk to Kip. And you know, I had this coveted breakfast time with him and, and I brought it up to him. And his, I mean, I just basically just gave the bare outlines. And his response was, sister, that's something out of your sinful past that just needs to be repented of. It's no, it's no, it's not part of your, you know, it's, it's not basically, he basically just, he just basically disenfranchised it completely. And that shut me down so much that I never brought it up to another leader again. I was just like, Oh my yeah. goodness. So, um, yeah. I, so again, that's just kind of how we thought, right? A lot of times that past is the past and 
Yeah. Yeah, we, we can't delete any part of our life uh, in terms of the narrative. You know, it's, it's, you know, God really does want to take us from misery to ministry. And if, if we don't allow God, and I say this all the time, if you're a listener of mine, you've heard this a million times. If we don't allow God to give us a ministry for our misery, then our misery becomes a mystery. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Why did I go through this? <laughs> what was the point? God, what am I supposed to do with this? And what we see in trauma research and what you see in scriptures that relates to biblical resilience is that the painful experiences that we have in our lives have to be updated into our personal biography. Mm-hmm. In other words, how I tell the story has to include that hard stuff. Mm-hmm. And any, anyway, I, I just, I, I love... I love how your book really kind of goes through your journey very intimately. My my next question is this. Your journey of healing uh, is inspiring specifically because of how you use your voice and how your voice was recovered Mm -hmm. in your journey of healing. In other words, healing has to involve a development or a healing of a person's voice. Mm -hmm. When we get traumatized, when we go through losses, it really stills our capacity for articulation. We aren't able to speak. Sometimes the, the wound is so deep, it, it takes our breath away. Other times we're in an environment, like you were just saying a moment ago, it's a culture of disenfranchisement. And we just, we are not able to articulate it safely mm-hmm. uh, without social or cultural repercussions. Mm-hmm. Um, what are some things that you notice uh, that tend to muffle uh, disciples, uh, as it relates to their healing journey journey. And what are some things that, you know, give voice Mm -hmm. to disciples as they heal? Mm -hmm. Great question. Um, you know, I think first of all, as far as what muffles our voice, I think a big part of our culture, and maybe this is, you know, I've, I've kind of been out of the ICOC now for a while. I don't really know what the current culture is, but I'm speaking to what I, what I knew for 25 years. Um, the culture that we that we had was very much a culture of constantly assessing and being assessed by others. I mean, discipling, mm. you know, you know, I think if we were asked of what to define what discipling is, we're trying to help others be like Jesus. But honestly, what it boiled down to a lot of times was you're looking for things, you're looking for things to correct, you're looking for things to mm. challenge, you're looking for things to even rebuke, you know, if you're on that end of it. Um, we weren't really emphasizing, you know, things to build up and praise and commend and encourage and exhort. It was really a, a, a very much a culture of correction. So I think one thing that kept keeps our voices muffled in that kind of culture is the fear of being corrected or judged for our feelings. Um, you know, we, we hope that we can bring things up and be listened to and understood and, and cared for, but... You know, we don't. We are afraid to be seen as as maybe ungrateful, or as critical, or as bitter, mm-hmm. or as stuck, or you know, to be seen as a struggling Christian. You know, especially if someone's mm. seen by others as being you know somewhat of a leader. The last thing you want is to be relabeled as a struggling Christian. Um, so I think that's a big thing that keeps us from from uh, really giving voice to what we're, we're feeling. Um, I think in my case, there was a, there was a fear uh, that I felt, I was afraid that if I started speaking up and sharing too, that um, I, I would be overwhelmed by the pain and I wouldn't be able to stop crying. It's kind of, you know, especially if you feel like you've kept something bottled up for a long time. There's this fear of, you know, if I start, if I really let it pop the cork, you know, how bad will it get? 
And in my case, it, it did lead to really literally months of crying. Uh, people probably thought I was insane, but the tears wouldn't stop. Um, I think there can be, if our lives are really busy and full with people and, and responsibilities and just life, whatever, um, we can be afraid to start speaking up because we don't feel like there's time or space in our life to start dealing with our stuff. Um, mm. And so, you know, if we, again, I could maybe bring, I could bring it up, but then if I have to go through, you know, a lot, a lot of time to process it, I don't think I have that space in my life right now. That's, that could be a common one. Um, again, I think you mentioned sort of this idea of it, it's, it's, it's been washed away in the waters of baptism or, or we should be able to pray things away. That could be kind of a, um, a trap too to think, you know, it's, it's, I can just deal, it can, I can deal with this, just me and God, I'll just keep praying about it um, rather than sharing with others. Um, another barrier can be like what I shared that the incident with Kippy, you know, past attempts to open up don't go well. That certainly shuts us down. You know, that mm -hmm. um, shut me down for a long time. Um, and then I think there's a question of, you know, who do I open up to? Who do I open up with? Um, who can I trust? Um, who's going to be there for me? And will I be a burden to someone if I start to really share what's going on in my heart? So I think all those things can keep us from, you know, wanting to start to, to share and give voice to the pain that we carry. And um, But at the same time, I think it's essential that we somehow learn to do it. And a big part of my healing journey was when I learned to start talking and sharing about it with others. It's not going to go away if we're just sitting, sitting on it by ourselves. Um, so I think things to help us open up. Um, I think starting to cultivate, if you don't have this already, cultivate deeper friendships so that you have those kind of relationships to go to where, where you have time and understanding in the relationship um, that allows for, for sharing confidences like that. Um, finding people we can share with, with where we can also be a, a, a safe haven for them. Um, and I don't think, I think we, we sometimes think, well, I don't know how to, I don't know how to handle someone else's issues or problems. Well, all you need to be is a safe haven, a place to listen and hear. You don't need to have the answers for that. So, yeah, so those are some things. You know, it's interesting. I'm going to be uh, organizing an interview with uh, my Old Testament professor at, uh, at, anyway, at seminary. And he wrote a paper on Job. And uh, what we're going to do in this, we're going to talk about Job and kind of this idea of how, how, how real can we actually be with God? Mm -hmm. You know, like how real, like if we're really real, will that offend him? Uh, and it's amazing sort of at the end of his conclusion, what he found out about how real God wants us to be. Number one, like the expectations that God has for realness are actually really high. Uh, uh, and he doesn't, he's not, we're not going to beat God up with our pain, <laughs> but the other, the other, I think thing that I'm really interested in is, uh, what I want to do called Job's friends. And just it's so interesting kind of you talked about with kip but also uh it is that culture of we we want to we want to evaluate we get hyper evaluative uh, we want to look for something to uh, at times sort of get a frying pan and just whatever and, and we we have this idea of being our brother's keeper mm -hmm. what's interesting about job's friends is for the first week or so i think you know they sat there with him they sat shiva they just were with him mm -hmm. 
They didn't reach into the bag. They didn't try to flex. They didn't try to get creative and, and all of a sudden be ingenious. They just sat with him. Mm-hmm. And leading researcher, a neuroscientist, uh, uh, Stephen Porges, he's uh, you know the creator of polyvagal theory. One of the things he talks about as far as neurobiology, in order to feel safe, you have to be safe. Mm-hmm. You, you actually have to be safe. And this kind of goes to our next question a little bit. But safety, I don't think is well understood. Mm-hmm. I, I think that people don't realize how important safety truly is as it relates to spiritual formation. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember in my Bible study series, as an 18-year-old kid, I had like eight or nine dudes in my quote-unquote sin study, if you will. Um, I remember, if I'm going to be completely honest with you, kind of managing information. Now, was I was I open later and transparent later? Sure. Mm-hmm. But when you're flanked with all of these sort of sin witnesses, <laughs> it, it, you don't feel safe, but nobody talks about it. Mm-hmm. And, and safety is critical. You know, you really don't know what someone's thinking until they feel safe. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so I, I kind of want to, we can bounce between these two questions, but you know, what advice, because Marilyn, you've been through this for a long time. Uh, you know what it's like to be around unsafe people. You know what it's like to be around safe people. Um, what advice do you have for those who are struggling to find safety so that they can address their grief? I mean, this is a very important dilemma mm-hmm. that many who are watching are having. Mm-hmm. Um, well, you got to find a friend, right? You've got to find someone. And it doesn't have to be. I think sometimes we're conditioned to think it's got to be someone who's ahead of me, spiritually older than me, wiser than me, whatever. Mm. Um one of the one of the key things, I don't know whether we'll talk about this much tonight, but one of the big, big things that helped me in my journey was discovering the Grief Recovery Handbook. Um, and there's a very, very specific exercises that the, that the method has you do. And the final step of that is sharing each at each point of your homework, sharing that with another person. And um, I ended up I asked, I asked six different women that were friends of mine, or that kind of knew her friends, if they would want to do this with me. Um, basically, the other person just working through their own things, doesn't have to be similar or whatever, just, just want to do their own work at the same time. So I asked six people, and um, I think four of them said yes immediately, and three of them ended up actually going through it with me, and I, I did different parts with different, different uh, individuals of those three. And they were, um, they were women that were younger than I, I am, had been Christians a lot, lot less time than I had been. Um, certainly weren't, like they weren't my, my leaders. They were just ordinary, you know, run-of-the-mill disciples uh, that had pain they wanted to work on. And mm. I felt very safe with each of them, very, very safe with each of them. And I think they felt that way with me. Um, so I, I don't know, I think you just, I don't know where people are at right now with, you know, making time for friendships, whatever, but I think it's really important to have friend, the kind of friends that you sit down and you, you have good long talks with them, right? You're not just mm. catch up for half an hour or text back and forth or whatever, but, you know, face to face where you sit down, and have coffee or share a glass of wine or whatever, but really talk, um, you know, for a couple hours, three hours if you can do it, but to, to really get to, to the... To the stuff that's that's deep, because I think um, if we're just kind of doing these 
you know, quick check-in friendships. We're never gonna, we're not gonna get to that level with them. So that's something I'm a big believer in. Yeah, I think that uh, people who help me to feel safe, a couple characteristics. Uh, they let me get it out. Mm-hmm. Like, so I'll go back to therapy. I remember when I was becoming a therapist, uh, they talked about everyone, you know, has this writing reflex. So when you hear something that's off or you hear something that's wrong, you have this part of you that just wants to jump in, kind of like Job's friends, and be like, boom, here's the correct way to think or here's, the, here's what you need to do. Actually, you want to, you actually want to slow that down. Yeah. What you want to do is you want to let the person get it out and then you know be a witness for them as they acknowledge the truth about what they're feeling right and sometimes i think because we get anxious or we have these um ridiculous uh paradigms about spiritual formation we think that uh we need to correct them now and that there's no time Mm-hmm. Right, because repentance isn't about a process; it's about a decision. Mm-hmm. And when we surround ourselves around people who, you know, they kind of have that decision sort of spiritual formation theology around them, they those are not the type of people that are great to help process mm-hmm. things with. Mm-hmm. Now, you can improve in that, uh, but for those of us who are fixers, um, I think we are probably really going to struggle when it comes to disenfranchised grief. <laughs> Because our inner critic or the parts of us that want to get over it or pretend it doesn't hurt that bad or whatever are going to be screaming at us. You know, how dare you use up any oxygen to grieve? Mm -hmm. You know, go make disciples or whatever it may be. And so I just think for some people, um, this idea of just kind of letting this person say what they're going to say may feel like, wait a minute. I'm not being my brother's keeper, whatever may have you. And so what's it like for you now, Marilyn? I mean, you're much more mature now. Um, You know, you know how to kind of figure out safety a little bit differently now than when you were younger. Um, How easy or hard has it been finding people in your maturity class, so to speak? I hate to put it that way, but to just kind of be with, you know what I mean? Like, is that, is that something you feel like is easy for people to find? Or you feel like it's been a challenge for people to find? Um, I, I feel really blessed to have a couple of really good friends that I feel like I can, that I know I can share anything with and, and vice versa. But I'm really glad you brought that up though, even about just the, you know, that, the, that um, immediate response to want to jump in and, and um, you know, not let people finish their sharing part because I, I really, uh, really struggled with that lately in my relationship with my son. He's been going through quite a few tough things. And um, he'll start to share, he's, you know, call a couple times and try to tell me what's going on. And I'm hearing him, I'm, as a mother, I'm hearing him get more and more negative and negative and negative and negative and going to this place of immediate despair and hopelessness. And my response as a mom is to kind of jump in and say, oh, no, you got you know, we'll, you know, God's going to, God's going to help. It's going to be okay. You know, um, I'm kind of almost, you shouldn't think that way. Um, you know, try to, try to stay positive. And I really, I, I really, really hurt him by responding that way. And, um, he, he actually just kind of shut, you know, for the first time in our relationship, kind of shut me out and said, you know, mom, you're not, you're not being what I need you to be. And, um, so I'm really glad you brought that up because I think we might be better at doing that in some relationships than we do in others. And I think as parents, 
it's, I, it's very, I think, very typical for us to go to the, you know, we want to encourage and build them up and um, help them think positively, right? And that wasn't what he needed. I guess he wanted, he wanted to do more venting with me. Um, so, yeah. So, um, yeah, my, my situation, I don't have, we don't have a, we don't really have a faith community here anymore. Our church is kind of dissolved and people have moved away. Um, got one really close friend that I can share anything with. She's always the person, actually, she's the person that I, when I write my books, she's the person I read it to first. So she's my ears that way. She knows me really well and I know her really well. And, um, yeah, I'm really grateful to have someone like her, but, um, if she were to move away or something, I, I think it'd be hard to find someone to replace that relationship um, in the situation I'm in right now. So let me let me let me do two things. So one of the things in your book that really impressed me in your healing journey is how you involved God's word in terms of memorizing God's word. Mm -hmm. Now let me actually use this to touch on a couple of things. First of all, the, the, the question that we just asked a moment ago is what gives voice and what muffles Christians, right? Um, well, the scriptures actually give voice, right? We, we see this in what we call psalmic disclosure. This is a study that was done in terms of uh, helping people who uh, had been through damaging situations and, and they actually gave them biblical literacy and a way to understand the psalm and a way to contextualize it for themselves. And what they found as it relates to this sort of the way that the Psalms can work for people is they can actually give voice wherein we have been stripped of voice. Mm -hmm. And we can see ourselves not just in the story of what you see in Joseph or what the story that we see in Esther, but the Psalms are deeply intimate. They're, they're very personal and they have that there's a mechanism almost built into the Psalms um, that even connect with the way our brains and our bodies work that I think is very powerful. The reason why I bring this up is because I think what you had shared in the book about memorizing scripture will give voice for certain people. Mm -hmm. Certain people who are looking for safety. One of the things that you found in the Psalmic Disclosure Study as well is you found that people felt witnessed. Mm -hmm. Being witnessed as it relates to safety, as it relates to healing from grief and disenfranchisement, one of the biggest things that you've got to give to a human being is they need to feel witnessed. Mm -hmm. In other words, what they went through, that you see that and that has value and, and, and that you notice it. Mm -hmm. And when people feel witnessed, this happens all the time in therapy when I'm with people, they may have had that process by themselves, but the fact that they had it with another in the presence of another is deeply powerful. Mm -hmm. Sometimes maybe we can't find that person right now or, or, or it, it's going to take some time. In the meantime, what I found in your in your journey as well, in the meantime, the scriptures can provide witness mm -hmm. for the traumatic events that we have experienced. The, the, the Bible mm -hmm. can be a witness. It can be with you while you go through it. And, and I just want to take a moment and allow you to talk about the power of memorizing scripture mm -hmm. and how that helped you in your recovery. Thank you. Well, before I talk about that, I just want to say I'm really glad you brought up the Psalms because um, I've been thinking a lot about the Psalms lately. I've always been very drawn to the Psalms. I think it's been, my emotional nature just gravitates, you know, to them. It's what sometimes the only thing, you know, when I'm going through a tough time, the only thing I really feel like reading are some of those more, the anguish Psalms, I call them, not, not the happy praise Psalms, mm. the anguish ones. 
And I was, I've been thinking lately about that. I'm thinking, you know, David really gives us a really great example of, of finding your voice and sharing your voice because, not that he wrote all the Psalms, but he wrote a lot of them, but, you know, he, he found a way to, to take his pain and his struggle and turn them into songs that people would sing and share. And so that's really a way of, of a really profound way of, of finding and sharing your voice with others um, that kind of parallels a little bit, not to a much smaller degree in my case, but part of my journey was I began to write poetry um, about some of the, the grief and pain that I'd gone through. And I found a, mm. a circle, we were part of a, Hannah and I were part of a, we called it our friendship group, but it was a group of disciples, a mixed group. And um, I asked him if I could start sharing some of my poetry in that group. And so for several weeks, they just let me turn it into a poetry reading. And I was sharing these really personal poems about some of the, the grief and pain in my life. And it was, it brought some really great discussion and openness and sharing. And um, it just really, really was amazing. So I, I don't know, I just, that was a cool part of my journey that, um, that really helped. But I think, yeah, I think the Psalm, David really is an example of, you know, finding your voice and sharing your voice and turning your pain into something that you can use to help other people. So as far as description memory, it's a little, a little different than what you're describing, I think. For me, it was, you know, I knew a lot of scripture. I've been in the Word for decades, you know, as a, as, a, as a leader in the church, using it every single day to teach and instruct and, you know, whatever. Um, and I, but I got to a point um, after the letter came out and things got really challenging spiritually for me, um, where I found it really hard to just read the Bible and get anything fresh mm. out of it. I felt every time I opened it, all I could hear were old lessons I'd taught or old lessons I'd heard or whatever. It's like I couldn't even find a part of the Bible that was just kind of unexplored or un, unfresh, you know, fresh to me. Um, and I began, it's kind of a long story, but basically I, I reached the point where I started uh, to memorize chapters of the Bible and then expanded into in memorizing, like I, I memorized first the book of First Peter, and then I memorized Colossians, and a few other shorter books, and then I decided I wanted to memorize Hebrews, and spent a long time memorizing that book, but what that did for me, wow. um, yeah, wow, what that did for me, though, is I, I was spending hours a day, I, I did a lot of it when I was on hikes and walks and whatever, but I was just spending all that time in the Word, going over and over these verses. A lot of them were verses that I kind of knew, but I kind of ignored, you know, because there's kind of key verses that we focus on a lot and verses that we just kind of slide over. But when you memorize an entire book of the Bible, you memorize all of it and you think about all mm -hmm. of it. And it just began to really feed my soul. Like it just began, to, I just began to feel like the reality of what the word was saying was so much greater and better and more beautiful than anything in my life. It just became everything. It just became, I don't know how to describe it, but it was it was very, it was a revelation. Um, and I felt like the word was in me in a completely deeper way than it had ever been before. And I'm still, I still do it. I'm still, I'm actually back in Hebrews again, going over some of the chapters that I got a little rusty in, but there's just a power in that of just dwelling in the word and meditating on it and having it going, I don't know, it just, it was incredible. I, I keep recommending it to people, but, um, you know, it does take, does take some application and persistence. And I think a lot of people say, oh, I just don't have the kind of memory. I think you have a better memory than you 
think you do. And if you start to mm. use that muscle, um, you can you can develop it um, a lot a lot more than you probably think you can. But that's what that journey was like for me. It just really infused me with the words of life. That's the best way I, I think I can say it. Um, and I, it's changed me. It's really changed me. So. Well, I'm grateful that that was a part of your healing process. And, and the reason why I, I think that um, that specifically is important is because a lot of the folks in the builder generation um, are looking for depth um, and they're looking to go deeper. Mm-hmm. And I think sometimes we forget that the scriptures are the way to depth. And even if you read a scripture a hundred times over, the next hundred times will go deeper. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I have to imagine that as you memorize God's word, there would be things that hit you that weren't just, oh, this is about God or this, this is helpful but things that became helpful to your healing journey. In other words, going over it over and over and over and over and over by his wounds, you were healed. I'm on and on and on and on. Uh, You start to see things differently Mm -hmm. and and the the word teaches us how to see ourselves. Mm -hmm. And so I wonder if, you know, you just, it wasn't just about getting strong spiritually. This was something that actually helped heal, heal, heal your soul, Mm -hmm. heal your spirit. Definitely, definitely, yeah. I mean, the word is so powerful, and I think we, you know, we, we kind of know that, but we sometimes we sort of forget it, right? How powerful it is, and um, I think there's a lot more power in, you know, memorizing a chapter of the Bible than there is in maybe getting out a bunch of commentaries and seeing what other people wrote about it. Hmm. We can sometimes think that's going to give us depth, but I think uh, letting it saturate us and just staying in the word, just pure word by itself, is extremely powerful. And healing, for sure. Anything you want to talk about before we go to our off-the-record conversation? Anything you want to talk about in terms of your books, any announcements, anything that you want to uh, Uh, make us aware of? Well, I'd love to direct people to to my website. You You can learn more about Paradise Road and find out where to get it from that. You can get it from Amazon, but also on my website. Um, so it's MarilynCrete.com. Just Google my name and it should come right up. Um, and if you want to know about the box must be empty is is not scheduled to come out till April fourth of twenty twenty three, which will be here soon, but not soon enough. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but if you want yeah. to uh, stay informed about that, if you go onto my website, you can just click on the, the little um, you know email add me to the email newsletter list newsletter yeah newsletter yeah list and um, you will get notified when the book is coming out. So, well, I want to put a personal plug for the book. I, I, as a mental health professional, as someone who you know, I study theology and all of that as well. I found the book to be uh, brilliant in terms of metaphor. Um, I found it to be a must-read for people who uh, are focusing on journey. Uh, at the end of the day, you know, people need a different perspective. Sometimes people need language. And the thing that the book does is it just from all sides. I mean, as a provider, as someone who's also healing from trauma, it just, it was very comprehensive. Uh, and you invited people into your dilemma, which in many ways is a shared dilemma. And so I just, I really found the book spoke to me. It answered a lot of questions. Like, I gotta be honest, I, as a, you know, I get baptized in 01. 
Is it O one? Yeah. Um, it answered a lot of questions, a lot, like a lot of holes have kind of existed since 2003 and it filled in a lot. And I get it's just from your perspective or whatever, but it filled in uh, very, very complex holes. And so anyway, I, I want to just recommend, I can't recommend the book enough. And I'm not just saying that because you're on. It's really good. It's really, really, really good. So can't wait for it to come out. Thank you. Well, I'm going to tell you what I tell all of our folks, uh, and I really mean this from the heart, Marilyn, that we are with you. We are with you and that God is for you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for letting me share. Oh, it's an honor. It's an honor. Well, we're about to go off the record. If you are a Patreon community member, uh, you have direct access to this. Uh, all you have to do is go into your Patreon you know, page deal and it'll be there if you are interested and hearing the off the record series, those conversations, please go to the Patreon page. Um, it's listed down in the description and you will have access to our next installment uh, where we are going to get into the Henry Crete letter of 2003. Here we go. See you next time. <laughs>